We're in um, a study of the book of John, and we're uh, starting out in John chapter 12. We just uh, figured, we just finished in, in John chapter 11, we, we saw Lazarus being raised from the dead. And we saw what happened, this incredible miracle, this incredible thing. And for the people who are in power, they rightly surmised that this was a threat to their position, to their authority, to their financial situation. Jesus was a threat. And so they decide, we have to kill him. Because if he keeps doing this stuff, everyone's going to follow him, which is a they're right. You know, people are starting to follow him. It's just a, it's an amazing thing. And so in John chapter 12, what we're going to see here is we're going to see something that, that is identified one way or the other. Is it waste or is it worship? And we're going to take that and we're going to delve into it. This is a, a story that for many of us we're pretty familiar with. Uh, it's uh, Matthew and Mark record this also. Uh, Luke has something said, but it's a different time, different place, different woman. There's some similarities, but it's, it's totally different in a lot of ways. But Matthew, Mark, and John all talk about this because this is so profound. And what happens is for us many times, and this is typical all the time with us a lot, is we, we read stuff, we get so used to it that it doesn't strike us. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, she poured oil on I, Yeah, I know that one, right? So let me read it, and then we're going to dig into it. Six days, this is John 12, 1 through 11. You can follow along on your phone, your Bible, or just listen Just listen. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. John figures we have a short attention span, right? Because he just told us this about eight verses ago, but he's catching us up, right? Here, a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's a year's worth of wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Jesus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing him. So, you know, you think about this, uh, kind of in the, the first thing that jumps out at you is we're seeing some sort of a gift and, and, and the giving of a gift. And this made me stop and think. I mean, I don't know if we often think about this. Why do we give gifts? Why do we do it? Now, sometimes we do it because we feel obligated, right? Sometimes somebody gives you a gift, you got to give them something back. Come on. Sometimes we do it to impress or maybe even manipulate people. Sometimes we do it to say thank you. I mean, even for us, if you're a visitor and you send us, give us your visitor card, we're going to send you a letter with a little gift, a little $5 coffee card, right? So it's to say thank you. But at its deepest, at its most profound level, the giving of a gift is a way of saying, I love you. I love you. We get great joy 
from the pleasure that a gift brings to someone, right? I love sometimes to surprise my wife with something. Why? To get brownie points, to get, you know, so she'll cook my favorite. No, I do it because I get great joy from seeing her pleasure in receiving the gift. So at its, at its deepest, at its most profound level, the giving of a gift is a way of saying, I love you. Every parent who has children knows that joy, right? On a Christmas morning when a kid opens a gift, that's something that they just wanted so much, and they're ecstatic. And you also know that that joy wears off really quickly at times, right? We also know the disappointment sometimes when our kid opens and goes, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. And you're like, missed it, you know? <laughs> Swing and a miss, that's it right there. So here we see gift giving in its purest form. And, and I, and I want to say this, we, we talk about this sometimes. It's a reckless form of giving. We sing about God's reckless love. And reckless, you know, somebody told me one time, reckless means not, not, not to do without thinking. No, the, the definition of reckless is to do without thinking or caring what the cost is. So reckless can be a bad thing, reckless driving. You're not caring about the possible cost to the people around you. But reckless can be a good thing because reckless can mean I give so purely that I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what the consequences might be for me. Now, the perfect example of that is Jesus's reckless love. He gave to the point of death. He gave because he said, I know it's going to cost me my life. But here we see it. Here we see it with Mary. We see giving with no thought to the consequences. It's reckless in a good sense. Now, Judas is thinking this is reckless in a bad sense. But this is the form of love that is very personal. It involves a large amount of her money. And it's a form of love that does not care what other people think. She does not care that somebody says, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done this. She knows it's the right thing. It's the purest form of giving that she can think of. So they're at a table, and they're, uh, they're, they're eating, right? And, and I just want to show you this because some, so many times we, we get this mixed up. And, and uh, we see, if, you, if you've ever seen, you know, Michelangelo's The Last Supper, okay, there's, there's about eight things with his, his painting, The Last Supper, that are totally wrong, totally wrong. First, if you see the original, every, every man at the table is very white. That, that's not what would have been. They would have been dark-skinned, Arabic-looking, right? First of all, they're all sitting in chairs. No one did that back then. They're all sitting in a long table, which is very much European style. They're in this beautiful room. It's daylight outside. All those things are wrong. All those things are wrong. It would have looked something like this, okay? This is the typical form of how they would eat in like a U-shaped type deal. There's an opening into the middle where servers can come in and make sure everybody, you know, drinks are replenished and food is exchanged and all that. And the biggest thing is they recline. They recline. Now, even this, you know, some, it, they would recline on their left arm and they would eat with their right, just like that, just like that. 
And, and that's how they ate. That's how a meal was done. That's how a person was honored. There would often be, you see it here, there would often be entertainment. I've, I don't have any, probably there was entertainment. It was, a, it was a meal to honor Jesus. And so there probably was entertainment. And this is where all this happens, where we're faced with this question, is this a needless waste of resources or a necessary act of worship? We have to think that through. We have to look at this. And so I I want you to see this because because here's something I think is very interesting. In Matthew and Luke, this is something that they both write about this, that Jesus said at the end of this, this, when this happened. Jesus said, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus is saying, this is such a profound act by her that throughout the world, people will honor her. People will go, Mary, so amazing. And can I tell you something? Let's just get real here. I don't feel that at first. When I first read this, I wasn't like, wow, Mary, unbelievable. 12 ounces of perfume? I mean, that's overkill to me, but really? Is this something that the whole world should rejoice in? And Jesus says, yes, that's what made me want to study this, all right? So is this, is this a needless, act of, uh, needless waste of resources or a necessary act of worship? What can we learn here? What does it show us? What is so important about this? Jesus identifies this as something incredibly important. What are we missing, all right? First thing I want you to see, this is just stuff that we see out of the text and applies to us. First thing is, Mary had to humble herself. Mary had to do something that she knew would be humiliating. She had to humble herself. She had to do that. We see this throughout Scripture. So here we are. We're at this party. It's six days before Passover, right? John's giving us all these details. It's very interesting. Half the book of John almost is in the last six days of Jesus' life. Almost half the book of John. He's already into it here. So he's telling us things. He's telling us it's in Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. He's telling us, very interesting, Mark and, uh, and Matthew tell us this. The person who's throwing the party, it's in his house, is Simon the leper. Now stop and think about that for a second. How can you eat at a leper's house? We don't get this. Lepers are unclean. In those days, especially in that area, lepers, if they went outside, they had to go around saying, unclean. They had to announce themselves to everyone. It was so humiliating. They had to go around and say, unclean, so that everybody would be like, it'd be like God parting the Red Sea. You know, a leper comes up to a crowd, yells, unclean. Everybody, because they know it's contagious. If you know anything about leprosy, it's a horrific disease. Your body literally dies a little bit at a time. Parts start falling off but you stay alive to endure it for quite a while. So it's a horrific disease. It's, it's horrible to see. It smells terrible because your body is decaying. Your fingers, it starts, fingers and toes start decaying on your body and smell. So they were, they were shunned. Most of the time, lepers weren't allowed to even stay in the home they lived in. They were forced out. The only way you could be around eat with, 
or in a house with a leper is if they'd been healed and they'd been declared clean by a priest. So Jesus, it seems undoubtedly, is eating dinner in the house of a leper whom he healed. And he's honoring Jesus with a dinner. He's honoring Jesus. He's honoring Lazarus for what Jesus has done to Lazarus. This is, a, this is a, a, an astounding thing that's going on here. He's throwing a party. They're reclining at the table. And now Mary decides to humble herself. Let me just reread that part. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. John is so precise in the details that he's, he's giving us here. He's making sure we understand. But first thing we have to understand is washing feet is a demeaning job. This is a part of her humbling herself. Washing feet is a demeaning job. That was what the lowest person on the totem pole did in any particular household. It was, it was a dirty world. People wore sandals or nothing on their feet. So feet were filthy. And so the worst job a person could have is to be someone who washes people's feet as they come in the door. Remember the Last Supper? And what did Jesus do? He washed feet. He washed feet. And then he does something that's very interesting. He washes all their feet. He has a little conversation with Peter. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and goes, do you understand what I just did? Do you understand what just happened? I've turned the world upside down. Bottom people wash feet. Top people get their feet washed. Flip that now. Leaders wash feet. The people in charge wash feet. He goes, I'm washing your feet. Learn this. Do you get it? Do you get it? This is how you lead. This is how you serve. This is how you live. It's a whole new way of living. It's God's way not man's way. We don't wash feet anymore, but our society has tons of ways that we ascertain who's at the top and who's at the bottom. And we enforce those ways rigorously. And she uses, instead of water, she uses perfume to wash. The whole house, John remembers the smell. It was probably very intense. And he gives us details. He says it's a pint. Literally in the Greek, it says it's a pound, a Roman pound. It's about 12 ounces. It's a Coke can. Right? It's a Coke can of pure, expensive perfume. And this is incredibly expensive perfume. This perfume, Nard is from India. You think back in those days, how expensive it would be to get perfume from India to Israel. And we're told, we're told it was 300 denarii. It was a year's wages of an average worker. This is an incredible gift. This may be her life savings. And so John wants us, with all these details, to enter into this act of love, this act of honor. And then she lets down her hair to wipe up the excess oil. This seems to be a very spontaneous thing. We know she bought it to plan something. Jesus talks about it for his burial. And then it seems like all of a sudden she goes, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to do it now. And she pours it. And then, usually, the foot washer would have a towel. She doesn't have a towel. So all of a sudden she's like, 
what can I do? And she does something that is an incredibly powerful thing in that day. Not so powerful to us. We struggle with that. But in that day, in the Middle East, and even this day with many Hasidic, really conservative Jews, the most powerful act of love, the most powerful moment of a oneness between a man and a woman is the marriage bed. And to this day, in those societies, and going on today in some, the only man who ever gets to see a woman's hair is her husband. It is reserved for him. Only, they're saying, only the most important person in the world to me, the person I love the most, the person I feel the most intimacy, intimacy with, that's the only person that gets to see my hair. It meant that one person saw, only one person in your life ever saw the real you, all of you. It's a total sign of intimacy and love. I read it quite a few years ago. It was in, um, I think it was Time Magazine. And it was a woman, she was writing. She grew up with her friend. They did high school together. They were college roommates together. They, they, they got crazy together sometimes. And, they, they, and then they got jobs. And her, her one friend fell in love with an Orthodox Jew. And, and she converted to Judaism. And they moved to Israel on a kibbutz. And this friend, she was writing in, in time. She hadn't seen her friend for years. And her friend said, come visit, come visit. So she goes to visit. And she notices her hair is totally covered in various ways, but she never sees her hair. And she, she asks her about it finally once. She says, uh, after a few days, I, what happened? You've really changed. And she says, my hair is only my husband's. And she, they were at her house, and she said, this is, our, this is our bedroom. Our children are not allowed in here. This is only for me and my husband. In this room... It's the only place my hair is ever shown, and it's only for him. And, and, and this girl who, who is totally non-religious, you know, who, and, and she just, she wrote in here, it was very revealing. She said, all of a sudden, that sounded incredibly attractive and romantic to me. And she wrote, lots of men have seen my hair. Lots of men have seen all of me. And they mean nothing. And it means nothing. And she said, I wish for that, where it means something incredibly personal and intimate and together that is only shared between two people. It's an interesting thing. So do you understand then when she let down her hair, she uncovered her hair. She opened herself to ridicule. The only person who uncovers their hair in front of other people is a prostitute. That would be the only person in front of multiple people. And she does this. Now, this only applied to women and still does in those Hasidic communities. It's very cultural, Right? But the principle behind it is what's so important. The principle is there is a highest expression of love. There's a highest expression of love. And so Mary does something that would be controversial, that would be uncouth, that would be unbecoming of a good religious person. And she decides 
that is worth transcending cultural boundaries to declare her total love for this man. She is saying, this man owns my heart. I honor him. I bless him in the most intimate way I know how. And so what does she do? She transcends those cultural boundaries where people would be, oh, that is so unbecoming. But the thing is, she does not sin. Those are just cultural boundaries. We don't require that anymore. We don't think necessarily anything of that anymore. But the principle is still the same. There was something between two people that is, oh, that is ultimate and intimate. And she says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. This is something that's demeaning. She wiped his filthy feet. That's what only the lowest person does. With her hair, what they would consider one of the most intimate parts of her body, people would not understand. Judas did not understand. I think she is saying here to Jesus, I know who you are. I do not care what others think. I must honor you. I love you more than any person or anything in this whole world. There's something for us to think about. She declares that in an open and public way without a care, recklessly, without a care of what anyone thinks. We struggle with that sometimes. Sometimes we struggle with what people think. Our pride creeps in, and pride can drain us of our humanity. It drains us of our compassion. It drains us of being understanding. You know, we see this, what she's done. We see this countless times in Scripture. Zacchaeus, a rich man, did something that no rich man would ever do. He climbed a tree. It was shameful for him to do that. He swallowed his pride. Peter, we see times where he swallowed his pride. Paul, he lists all his accomplishments, everything that makes him such an important person. And he says, that's just a load of you-know-what compared to knowing Jesus. He says, all of that is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. So Mary had to humble herself. I want you to see something else she did. Mary understood the death of Christ. She understood it. Now, let me say, I don't don't know if she totally understood it or everything about it, but she seemed to realize what was going on. And I will say this. When I first came to Christ, I didn't understand it. I didn't totally understand it. I didn't understand a tenth of it. All I knew was my life was screwed up. I'm a sinner. I've totally screwed my life up. I'm a sinner. I knew I needed a Savior. I needed someone who could take care of my sin and change me. So I accepted Jesus Christ because he showed through his death, his burial, and his resurrection that he had power over that. He could do that. He could forgive sins. That's what I needed. And I grabbed it. But I didn't totally understand it. I was just getting inklings of it. And here, she's beginning to understand the death of Christ. When, when we begin to understand the death of Christ, when we begin to get it, it moves us, it changes us, it motivates us to love, to serve. You know, there are lots of reasons that people are religious, right? For some, it's almost, it's almost like nostalgia. They're raised in the church. It feels good. It feels comfortable. This is what I've always done. My family always did it. I do it with my kids. It's just this, it's this thing that's just comfortable and safe. For some, it's, it's kind of like a bargaining thing. They cut a deal with God. God, I need protection right now. 
God, I need help right now. I need my prayers answered right now. I know someone who's went through some incredibly difficult issues years ago, not here, years ago, and suddenly started going to church. God, I need help. Those things were resolved in a very good way, and, and it worked out really well. God worked, and he disappeared. And now he's gotten a medical report that is incredibly troubling and dangerous, and he's back to a church. God, I need help. God, I need help. That's bargaining. That's bargaining with God. I'm not saying God won't work with you in that. I'm just saying that's a terrible reason. Some of it's a guilt trip. They're desperately trying to convince God and maybe even yourself that you're a person of worth. And I just want to tell you these things, and there's others, nostalgia, bargaining, guilt, they'll burn you out. They'll wear you out. Have you ever had somebody tell you, I tried Christianity. It didn't work. This is what they tried. This is what they tried. Because it's not about working. It's not about doing. It's, it's about what's been done. Mary, why did she do this? We could call it a religious action. Why did she do this, this moment of sacrifice and humility? Well, verse 7 tells Jesus said, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. She figured out that he was going to die. She was starting to figure out what was going on. And one of the things that happens when a body is buried is they, they anoint it with perfume. So she had gotten this incredibly expensive perfume just for that reason. And she realizes his death. She makes plans for it. And then seemingly, I mentioned unplanned, she, she demonstrates her love and worships him by anointing him before he dies. When we begin to understand this, man, what he's done, what is that? Our sins are forgiven. They're taken away. They're not just forgiven. They're gone. They're taken away. He will never bring them up again. When we begin to realize we become blameless, blameless in the sight of God. When we begin to realize we sang lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. We're loved by him. We want to love him back. These, these thoughts, these inklings, they drove Mary. Nostalgia, bargaining, guilt trips, they won't do that. Mary gave freely, not earning love. She's expressing love. And the question is, how can we do that? How can we do that? Because oftentimes what we do then is we misread this and think this is all about money. It's not about money. Right? What is this about? This is about this. What's holding me back? from loving God. He wants it. He wants it. He's, he's not saying take your most treasured possession and get rid of it or sell it. He's saying what is holding you back from following Jesus? Think about what you may have to sacrifice. What is holding you back? Third thing for us to be thinking about, Mary had to humble herself. Mary understood the death of Christ. And finally, Mary decided, she decided, I'm going all in. This is all or nothing. Verse 4, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, saying, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As, a, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. 
So now we see a contrast in responses. This whole passage is full of contrasts. Little town of Bethany contrasted with this huge Jerusalem where all the action is. And Jesus is in the little town of Bethany. We, we see these contrasts between Judas and Mary. We see these contrasts going on in this thing, and in this passage. And, and here Judas objects to this display with kind of a, a cold, utilitarian way of thinking. He's disguised it as concern. He's going, here's wages. Judas is a voice we hear a lot. Don't go overboard. The voice of reason, right? Don't go overboard. Sure, give something, but not that much. This is the voice of reason in our world. I'm not anti-reason, right? I'm big proponent of it. But sometimes reason is wrong. Because God's plans and God's ways are often countercultural. They're counterintuitive. When I was in graduate school, um, there was uh, some classmates, and I, I, I was taking a class on um, learning about different cultures and how cultures function and, and, and different ways that cultures accomplish things. And um, there was, I had two classmates. It was a husband and a wife. And they both had their Ph.D. in linguistics from Michigan State University. They've been years studying. What were they going to do? Their plan, and they did it, their plan was to go overseas to an unreached part of the world and live amongst a tribe that the language no one knows but that tribe and the area, learn the language, figure out how to reduce it to writing, teach them how to read and write their own language, and then get them Bibles. Translate the Bible into their language so that they have the Bible in their language. You know, it all kind of goes back to this group they serve with. It started way back in the 40s and 50s when a missionary in another country was telling people about how much God loved them. And this man said to them, if God loves me so much, why doesn't he speak my language? Why do I have to learn your language to find it out? And he said, we need to get the Bible into every language. And so this couple... They both got their PhDs. Now they're getting a master's degree in cross-cultural communication, years and years of schooling, so that they can go and serve people that no one's heard of and no one cares about. They were the coolest people I'd ever met in my life. Their focus, their love was amazing. Their families were not happy. Their families said, Listen to reason. You are two brilliant people. Get jobs. Make money. Get yourself situated, settled, and comfortable. Then you can do whatever you want. You could probably make so much money that you could give so much money that it would have more impact than if you just went. Listen to reason. And one of them told me, he was talking to his parents, and he said, let's just think about this for a minute. We're on this little ball that's hurtling through space for a short period of time. If this ball doesn't run into something like an asteroid or the moon, whatever it might be in the movies today, if this ball doesn't run into something, when the short period of time is up, we die. And we fall into the arms of a loving father 
and spend eternity with him. What does a million dollars mean to that? Nothing. And they said, we want to prepare for eternity first. So their families said, we don't think it's a great idea. Listen to reason. But see, they didn't understand this couple was living by a new set of economic principles that they weren't as familiar with. They were familiar with the world's principles. But God's economic principles run counter to the world's principles. Mary here is living by a new set of economic principles. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, when he says this and when he says about the poor, he's not putting down the poor. We obviously can see that by the way he lived his life. Jesus was incredibly concerned about the poor. He talked about them. He ministered to them all the time. He's not saying, I don't care about the poor. He's saying to Judas, look, you're going to have all kinds of time to serve the poor. Knock yourself out, man. But right here, right now, I'm here, and it's short. What is done here honors me. He said, are you so concerned about the poor? Knock yourself out, man. They're, they're going to be around for a long time, but I'm not. So following Jesus means we, get, begin to, we begin to live by a new set of economic principles. Following Christ means sometimes we give things up. Paul said, all this stuff is rubbish for the gain of following Christ. The love of Christ is the gain. The Bible says giving brings joy. It brings joy. The, the Old Testament talks about it in the form of a tithe or a tenth. The New, Te- New Testament just tells us to be generous. It's not necessarily a set amount. This is what I love about it. It's between you and God to work that out. I mean, I think 10% is a good starting point, but as God blesses, we need to become more generous. Following Christ, and Mary will discover this, following Christ may cost comfort and security, but the security we lose is nothing compared to the security we gain. Mary had been listening to Jesus over the years. She'd heard things like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And when he then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. He's saying, what I'm offering you is beyond comparison to anything in, that your, your hands can hold in this world. There's nothing that comes close. And Mary understood that. And she just said, I'm, I'm giving this to him. I'm going to honor him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to declare to everyone around me, I love this man more than any person in the world. She said, I'm going all in. I'm going all in. When we begin to see these things, when we begin to understand these things, that Mary had to humble herself. We have to humble ourselves. Mary understood the death of Christ. We've got to start thinking about what the death of Christ means for us right here, right now. Mary decided to go all in. We've got to make a decision. What am I going to do? Am I willing to go all in? Am I I willing to start working at going all in? We become people of generosity. We become people of courage. We we become people of principle. We're not afraid because the grave is not the end. It's just the beginning. 
Because the whole point is, God wants you. He wants you. And we may not always understand. You know, Paul didn't say, you know, I know what God is doing. He said this, I know the God I have believed in. I know whom I've believed in. And that he is able. He is able. And if we're honest, sometimes what we do is we say, God, I, I will obey if. And suddenly there's an if. I will obey if you do this. I will obey if this happens to me. I will obey if. And I want to tell you something. If you think about that, putting an if in a relationship kills it. It kills it. Because now it's just two people. Instead of loving each other, it's just two people trying to get what they want out of their relationship. I will obey if it's practical. I will obey if it looks like it'll pay off. But that's not really obeying, is it? When we realize this, when we see we were made to have a relationship with him, that's when we blossom. You know, a little later, Jesus says this, echoing some things he's taught about quite a bit. But in this passage, and we'll get to it in a week or two, it says later in John 12, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life, they'll gain life. Now, it's not, you know, this is such typical Jewish writing and speaking. Jesus was a Jew, and, and in those days, they would use extremes. doesn't mean hate, like we think of hate. Just like Jesus said, unless you hate your parents, you can't follow me. Well, he doesn't mean hate your parents. What he's saying is, I'm so much greater. There's a huge difference. The only way I can express that difference is by expressing it in extremes. And so he's telling them, when you follow after me, that's where life is. That's where life is. When you chase after what you think, what our culture thinks are these ideas of life, right? This is really living. Just watch commercials. They all, that's all they're based on. When we follow those, we never quite follow. We get little tastes, and it's gone like a wisp of smoke. and You can't grab it. You see it for a moment, and then it's gone, and you're left wanting. Jesus talks about this over and over, about living for self and living for him, and Mary got it. She got it. And I love the end of that passage. God promises to honor us. Jesus tells us he will honor us like he honored Jesus. He will love us like he loved Jesus. And so we're called. We are people who have been called by God. I am called by the God of the universe to be worshipers like Mary, to be extravagant lovers of God and of people like Mary, to be servants like Mary. He's saying, when you do that, when you pursue me, you find life. Guess which word for life it is? Zoe. Zoe. There's bios in the Greek. Bios is just living, breathing, eating, drinking, existence. That's bios. Zoe is meaning, purpose, a reason to live. And Jesus talks about it as eternal Zoe. 
we will have purpose and meaning for eternity, reason to live for eternity. He says, but it's available here and now. So the question for us, wrapping all this up, right now, are you just by us? You're just living day to day, bit by bit, get a little more, spend a little more, grab a few more things, stick them in the garage, right? Or are you Zoe, living, purpose, meaning, things that fulfill? That's what he has for us. That's what Mary grasped. And I'm telling you, when she poured that perfume, when she humiliated herself, humbled herself, humiliated herself in front of all that, all those people, she was living, living for a purpose, honoring him. And he said, people will honor her throughout the world. Why? Because in so many cultures, they understand, they really get what she did. We're grasping at it. It's not natural for us. It's harder for us. But in so many cultures, they will go, oh, my goodness. Look what she did for him. Let's pray. Father, we pray for each of us, Lord, that we would at times stop and take stock of our lives. And Father, that we would decide to pursue you with all our hearts. Because, Lord, that's where life is. And it doesn't mean it's always great. doesn't mean it's comfortable. But it's life and it's purpose and it's meaning and it's fulfilling. And you want that for us. And, Lord, we pursue you not to get purpose and meaning and fulfillment. We pursue you, God, because you're God. And you alone are worthy. But in doing that, you bless us. You love us. You return upon us tenfold. So help us to be people. Help us to take this example of Mary, to honor her by trying to be like her and following her example. God, for each of us here now, as we leave this place, Lord, you know our hearts. You know our desires, our needs. You know our stress and our struggles. We pray for you. pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would work. You would reveal yourself. You would show yourself in various ways to encourage us, to uplift us to exhort us, God, the greatest thing we can do is to follow you. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.